Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Penchassi. My guest today is Domina Stanton, the author of The Dynamics of Gender in Early Modern France, Women Writ, Women Writing, and the book was published by Ashgate in 2014. Hi there, Domna. Hello, Roxanne. Thanks so much for doing this with me. Well, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Could you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work on France and French literature? Sure. Um, uh, I have been, I suppose there's a biographical element. I learned Greek and French at the same time, and the, and the French obviously stuck more than the Greek, so <laughs> I've been in it for a long time, and uh, frankly have been interested in issues of women and gender uh, for a long time, and uh, indeed there was a point in my career where you sort of had to do both mainline um, 17th century and kind of do tucking in women and gender on the side, but <laughs> now we can all do both at the same time, which is really terrific. And the subject of this book in particular, Domna? Well, uh, it is uh, actually uh, a collection of essays uh, that represent uh, decades of making and remaking. Um, I, I like to to emphasize that it is because of courses and seminars and dissertations and lectures and conferences and papers and essays and, ob- and embryonic form that all kind of play their part in readings and especially rereadings. Um, so, um, you know, inevitably this becomes a collective work because of the students and colleagues and scholars and theorists that I have worked with and whose ideas are inevitably incorporated uh, in this book with, with grateful thanks. So as you say, Donna, the book is a series of readings of texts written by French authors of the early modern period, and that's the phrase you use in the, in the title. Um, and we'll get to the specifics of the authors and texts uh, in a little bit. But before we do, I just wonder if you could situate the book historically a bit. When and what does the early modern France in the title of the book refer to? Um, and what can you tell us about France during the period that you deal with in the book? Absolutely. Well, uh, in my particular instance, obviously, early modern generally refers to the 15th to the 18th century. Uh, my focus is 17th century, though I do go back to the 16th and forward to the 18th. There's a, uh, a, at the end of one chapter, I, I actually look forward uh, to Mary Wollstonecraft um, in the 1790s. Uh, but basically, it's anchored in the 17th century. And what can you tell us about the position and roles of women in the 17th century in France? Um, well, uh, generally speaking, absolutely. Um, it, what What is interesting here is that uh, the 17th century um, is a moment really of uh, 
uh, enormous change, uh, for one thing. Uh, there is, uh, and uh, very importantly for my uh, topic, uh, specifically political struggle with the Fronde, uh, the Civil War, the last really noble and bourgeois uprising before the revolution, and there are, in fact, elite women uh, who play a central and actually military role uh, in that. Um, but further, there is uh, inevitably around 1660 uh, a coalescence of absolutism, a term I always put in quotes because, of course, it's not uh, ever complete. Uh, and uh, following uh, Foucault, who is one of my compagnons de route, mm-hmm. uh, this that means not just a repressive but also a productive uh, period uh, as well. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to emphasize, uh, particularly with respect to women, uh, is the fact that um, uh, quite uh, unusually, uh, from 1550 to 1660, we have three female regents um, uh, who uh, rule of France, however, temporarily. Uh, and what uh, this effectively means is the transgression of Salic law because France was the only country in Europe uh, to have as a fundamental law of the state uh, that no woman would ever occupy the throne. Um, so it is a moment when there's a great deal going on uh, politically precisely because of that. Um, socially, there are a class upheavals uh, with an ascendant of bourgeoisie and a somewhat um, uh, diminished uh, a mon- uh, how shall I say, aristocracy, especially the uh, noblesse d'épée, in favor of a new aristocracy, the noblesse de robe, uh, that the monarchy create- creates and which, in fact, empowers uh, the bourgeois. Um, but And then further, from a cultural uh, point of view, uh, one of the aims of the book is to really take on the question of the classical. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes the 17th century has been petrified uh, as the era of the classical classical literature, the classical body, and other terms. And so I wanted much more to look contextually and historically um, at as why uh, some of those categories really don't make a great deal of sense. Well, and I'm going to want to come back to that question of the classical body in a few moments. But before I do, the book is, is, as you say, a series of these close textual readings, but you're also very interested in this historical context that you've just sort of outlined for us. Could you say a little bit more about how you negotiate the historical and the literary in this book and then in your scholarship more broadly, sort of methodologically speaking? Sure. I would want to add one more layer, which makes the negotiation even more complicated, <laughs> and that's um, of the theoretical. Mm. Uh, that is to say, there are certain people, Foucault being one, Butler being the other, and uh, while I uh, uh, how should I say? I cite them. I incorporate them. I'm also reworking and rethinking what they say, and in some cases, criticize them as well. So it's really three levels. Uh, mm-hmm. So you have the textual slash literary. Uh, you have the historical, and then you have this kind of contemporary theoretical model. Because I think another thing that each of the chapters tries to do uh, is to take on a theoretical problem uh, and see where uh, in the history of um, criticism and theory there have been some blind spots about some of these uh, some of these topics uh, sort of embodied by the particular text in each chapter that I focus on. So in the introduction to the book, Domna, you outline your approach to the study of gender in early modern France. And you do, as you say, you introduce... Butler and Foucault, and then work with them throughout 
work with both of them throughout the book. Just sort of in broad terms, can you sketch out for us how and why you've chosen to work so closely with these two theorists and how their insights underpin the readings and analyses in the book? Sure, of course. Um, I think uh, in some ways uh, nobody can work on issues of constructionism uh, and agency of power and resistance of dominant discourses and counter-discourses without invoking uh, Foucault and mm-hmm. Butler. Uh, the problematic thing in Foucault uh, is, of course, that he didn't show any interest in gender. Um, and there has been a rather conflicted feminist history uh, with Foucault. Um, uh, for example, his, uh, uh, his statement in the History of Sexuality, Volume 1, do not ask who is speaking, who has power, and who does not, uh, which conflicts with, obviously, a focus on gender position uh, mm. or position of the speaking subject that I would be later, uh, uh, obviously, in my own work, I'm very interested in. Uh, there's also, I would argue, however, a late Foucault uh, who is more interested in subject positions, uh, in particular in relation to the uh, advocacy of homosexual issues. Um, So uh, I would say that was sort of central to my project, even as I often disagree with him. Um, As for Butler, I was uh, very uh, interested that, uh, although most people read Gender Trouble, that um, in undoing gender, and it's in a way the way I begin the introduction, uh, I look at the fact that she too um, emphasizes the historical and the way in which norms um, uh, are reworked, resignified, recited, if you will. And that was particularly interesting t- to me as a way of negotiating the theoretical and the historical, which I'm very uh, concerned with in this book, and particularly uh, kind of combining gender theory with the historical, um, that we are talking about, as the title indicates, a situation that I call a dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been concerned that in gender theory, there has been a tendency to reify a gender uh, when, in fact, I think that gender is not only a relational construct, but shifts uh, at, at any moment of time. You have contradictory tendencies. You have uh, shifts in this direction and that direction, uh, generally in uh, one might call the dominant discourse and specifically uh, in in uh, the speaking subject of a, of a text, for example. And I think that this uh, dynamic um, approach, and I, I pinpoint the concept of, of a dynamic specifically uh, in the science of the period, uh, specifically Galileo and Descartes and Leibniz and Newton, um, uh, which was concerned with the notion of bodies in motion and how they collide. And I thought that was a very useful metaphor for my own emphasis on gender shifting all the time. Um, and obviously not only women, but also men as well, uh, since it's always a dialectical relation of femininity to masculinity. Well, just to follow up on that, the introduction to the book also situates your work within the context of the broader literary and historical scholarship on the Querelle des uh-huh. Femmes. So I have two questions. Absolutely. What was the Querelle yes. des Femmes? <laughs> and you make the uh-huh. point that the Querelle needs to be understood as a Querelle des Hommes also. So could you say a little Absolutely. bit more about the intervention that you're making there? 
Yes. Uh, well, you absolutely picked up, I think, a crucial point of this issue that we cannot talk about the querelle des femmes without making it a querelle des hommes, since obviously masculinity is also in a dynamic and actually, I would argue, critical position uh, in this moment. But to back up a little bit, um, there has been a tendency, I suppose, mostly exemplified by Joan Kelly in the late 70s, a really um, important essay uh, on the querelle des femmes, uh, where should argue that it was basically a repetition over and over again uh, throughout the centuries and that nothing changed until there was a cross-class um, alliance of women, if you will, uh, at the revolution and later. And I uh, really disagreed with that view, uh, for one thing, because, uh, if you will, at any moment, uh, even if it's the same tropes, uh, they are, if you will, um, deployed or embodied, uh, certainly uh, at different historical moments, and so different uh, elements of the querelle des femmes uh, would become more relevant, less relevant. And then, of course, at any one point, uh, there are different emphases. In my particular uh, period, it was really uh, knowledge, um, uh, savoir, uh, and also women's cultural roles uh, that were uh, really being debated, uh, not to mention, of course, the political that I spoke about earlier. So the book, Domna, is structured in two parts, women writ and mm -hmm. women writing. And the first part of the book right. focuses on male writers, while the second focuses on women writing during the same period. What can you tell us about the decision to organize the book in this way? Well, again, I mean, it's kind of the embodiment of this notion that gender is relational. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so I thought if I had a first a set of texts uh, written by men, uh, but uh, focusing on women and men, of course, uh, and then the second on women writers, that in some ways the first half creates a sort of context uh, for the second. But there are also uh, sort of salient differences uh, which have to do with genre. Uh, since uh, the first half, uh, what I do is focus on tragedy uh, and treatise, uh, certainly very uh, canonical, a genre and also satire, that would be basically the genre of the first half of the book. Uh, and those were identified with not only uh, long-standing genre, but very specifically were identified with a genre that the so-called ancients in the century-long debate of the ancients and the moderns really espoused. Uh, by contrast, uh, the women... Uh, were identified with the moderne uh, uh, for various reasons, uh, and one of them being specifically a uh, generic. Uh, that is to say, uh, the um, uh, the genre represented by the second half of the book are memoirs um, uh, and uh, uh, as well uh, the novel, and finally correspondence. Uh, women really were considered to have made. Uh, major contributions uh, to the epistolary genre um, and as well to uh, fiction, not always for the most positive reasons since women's identification with the fictional also means a duplicity, um, uh, which is one of the tropes uh, of the in the querelle des femmes. 
Uh, as for the first chapter devoted to women's writing, uh, this the memoir is a very interesting genre because, indeed, it comes to fruition right after this civil war that I mentioned of the Fronde, where, uh, in some ways, aristocrats who had been on the wrong side of the monarchy wrote uh, these memoirs as self-justificative pieces uh, and as a legacy to uh, to their uh, descendants. Uh, so there is a very striking proliferation of male um, memorialist writing uh, mm-hmm. after 1650. And then the women come along and appropriate that genre. Um, uh, and many of them are only published posthumously, but indeed the one that I chose um, is actually by a middling rank woman, Madame de la Guette, um, who uh, begins her memoir by saying, I have the right to write my life, um, and asserting then that you don't have to be, um, you know, a king or a, a, a warrior uh, to uh, justify your writing your, your memoir. And indeed, it is published uh, roughly in 1680, which was unusual for the time. That's really fascinating. So I'd like to focus on each part of the book for a little while, if, if we could. So in the first sure. part, you discuss the series of texts by male authors, and they include Racine, <laughs> Fenelon, Poulain de la Barre. How and why did right. you choose these texts and authors, the ones that you've included here? Right. Well, uh, the first one, if you recall, uh, is um, this really curious text, uh, which is anonymous, right. and which I, to which I was introduced, actually, by Bakhtin um, uh, in his book on Rabelais. Uh, and um, uh, I... I went right away after reading uh, Bakhtin for the first time, uh, discovered the text, and thought his reading was not um, correct. Um, and I was more broadly in- interested precisely in the question of, of Carnival, um, his view that it was sort of revolutionary. I sort of argue against that. And thirdly, the issue of the classical body, because... Um, Bakhtin assumes that this Caquet de la Couchée, which is the 1622-1623 text I'm analyzing, was emblematic of the rise of classicism and the closing off of the body as compared to the Rabelaisian opening of the body. Um, and so it is a very intensive rereading around uh, of the text itself, uh, and of the sort of misogyny uh, within the text, if you will, uh, and come to some uh, uh, questions at the end regarding um, does this mark uh, the advent of the classical body or just the opposite? Um, because I think that, again, the, the issue of the classical body has become such a trope that really needs to be uh, questioned. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that trope is and how it's been working in the scholarship thus far? Sure. Well, uh, what I discovered, uh, and I, in fact, I begin the first chapter uh, with this, uh, is that there's an interesting conjuncture uh, of both uh, Foucault uh, uh, and uh, Elias uh, as well, um, and uh, Bakhtin, the three of them, all approximately at the same moment, at least in the translations that we have, and even more specifically of the moment in which uh, Bakhtin uh, uh, and Elias become kind of central uh, to uh, this kind of thinking, the shift from the warrior to the courtier, uh, the shift from kind of uh, uh, 
warlike uh, lack of civility to politesse. Uh, and then Foucault, of course, the, the Foucault of discipline and punish, where they all converge on this uh, kind of classical body as a shut-off, subjected body, uh, which uh, bears the imprint of the state surveillance and regulation. Um, and I was very interested in that conjuncture of those three, basically, uh, then uh, constructing this notion of the uh, classical body, uh, and then it has been used ever since, and I think very rarely questioned um, by specific textual analysis where you look at the text and you think, wait a second, there's nothing very closed about this body. Um, uh, because I don't think all of a sudden, at a particular moment, bodies become classical or unclassical. Uh, more typically, I think there bear traces of both those tropes, if you will, um, open versus closed, um, speaking of lower bodily functions or not. In my particular instance, this text that I focus on is uh, a lying in, uh, again, a kind of tradition uh, in, uh, in writing since the Middle Ages um, in which um, a, a man who is melancholy, uh, decides with his doctor that the best way to be cured is to go hide behind the screen uh, at a lying in and to hear women's talk when they don't know a man is in the room. So that's the kind of um, odd um, thing that is set up. But in the process, I question, as I say, the issue of the classical body. There's nothing very classical about this woman who's just given birth and there's much talk about the placental and the afterbirth and and excremental texts and things like that. So what of your reading of Racine and the text that you've chosen to, to focus on in this book? Right. Well, the, 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 the reason for the Racine chapter, you know, if there's ever been an emblem of classicism, what Bach called eternal literature, it is, of course, Racine. And um, uh, there has curiously been very little gender analysis um, of, of the Racinian corpus, uh, paradoxically, uh, because uh, since the 17th century, uh, Corneille was identified as the virile uh, dramaturge and Racine as the kind of, of more feminine one. Uh, and um, that trope, continue, critical trope, continues to this very day. So I wanted to look at, I just picked one, and that was, of course, uh, the Iphigenie, in my particular instance, uh, looking, in fact, at how uh, uh, the one could read uh, Racinian tragedy contextually, um, which uh, traditional uh, theorists of tragedy do not. Uh, and I have to say here that uh, the field that has made the most interesting moves in terms of historicizing Greek tragedy, for example, have been the classicists. Uh, a large number of classes that then allowed us to the those of us who work in other periods to see how you could read tragedy historically and not keep saying this is universal literature and and then we have nothing to say about its contextual um, production. Um, so I was uh, very interested in that issue with Racine, and as I say, this particular uh, play fascinated me because I think that those who have read it. Um, had their own blind spots, if I can put it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and indeed, um, whereas um, they make of uh, the central character, Iphigenie, a kind of emblem of charity and goodness, I see a much more 
uh, complicated, I think, um, issue uh, around the invention is the one character that Racine invents, whose name is Erifil, and who ultimately becomes the scapegoat because she is, quote-unquote, the bad woman, uh, the passionate woman, as compared to Ephigenie, the good woman, the virtuous woman. So I play out that dialectic and then conclude, I hope not in any kind of um, overreading, uh, that finally... Um, uh, Iphigenie and Erifil are really doubles of each other. And what was set out as a kind of binary between the good woman and the bad woman, actually they are both in the same boat. And what can you tell us about the other authors that you discuss in this first part of the book, Fénelon and Poulain Labar? Right. Well, uh, uh, one of the things that runs throughout the book uh, is really this emphasis on pedagogy, uh, education and so forth for a number of complicated reasons uh, uh, after the rise of humanism, uh, the issue of whether women should be educated or not becomes central. And clearly uh, the pro-woman faction uh, says, yes, they have to be able to read um, uh, philosophy and uh, science and uh, uh, so forth and so on. And there is great resistance uh, to do that. So you have... Um, Elite uh, girls uh, being uh, taught at home to sew and play music, I guess, but not very much reading. Uh, at the lower class level, uh, you have the church and uh, the abbesses and nuns beginning to do a kind of teaching of girls, but it's extremely elementary. It's mostly religious with a little bit of writing and arithmetic and, of course, sewing as well. Um, so I was interested in <clears throat> the whole notion of the pedagogical. Uh, and obviously this notion that I emphasized earlier of the importance of savoir and savoir as pouvoir in this period. So uh, uh, knowledge becomes central uh, to the whole gender dynamics. And the, uh, the attempt uh, by women to get greater and greater education, which they do <clears throat> also in salons, uh, one French critic has called it the site of permanent education of women, uh, is extremely important as well uh, to help women uh, learn to read, uh, uh, become critical of what they see and hear, and become eventually writers themselves. So <clears throat> the pedagogical seemed to me a central issue for the querelle des femmes for 17th century women and gender. Um, and I decided... It's the only chapter in which I discuss two works intensively. Uh, one is by Fénelon, um, uh, and it's a treatise on girls' education. Um, and there I showed how, um, well, uh, let's put it this way, conservative uh, Fénelon, who's reputed to be a pre-enlightenment thinker, was about women's education and how, in fact, uh, he warned against uh, 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 any kind of expansion of uh, education for women. And on the other hand, Poulain de Labarre, who is arguably <clears throat> the most radical pro-woman writer of the period, uh, who uh, applying a kind of Cartesian uh, model of systematic doubt urges women uh, to learn everything they can, doubt what they can, um, and I mean, doubt everything that they confront, question authority, and so forth. So I kind of uh, looked at those texts very closely, 
um, not to deify Poulain to uh, diminish uh, uh, Fédelon, but to look at this really powerful debate in the course of the period. And Poulain himself, there's a moment finally in the particular treatise that I study um, where he doesn't live up to the promise since um, unlike uh, uh, his earlier text, here he does not promote professions for women. I just want to pick up on something you just said, Domna, about um, these authors. What does it mean in this period and in the sort of literary realm? What does being pro-woman mean? Well, it's interesting, and I grapple with that problematic uh, in um, uh, in the introduction. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact of the matter is the querelle des femmes uh, very broadly and reductively uh, pitted uh, those who were who favored education, who favored women uh, having a cultural role, did not oppose the regions, the female regions and so forth, to those who were clearly very threatened by it. There's an enormous proliferation um, of, um, of works around these issues. Uh, very often uh, uh, debating women's worth and therefore status that she sh- women should have within society. And uh, what I was uh, uh, grappling with is what would be uh, appropriate terms to use. And I, dis- I discussed that in some uh, detail um, in the introduction uh, because obviously for me, feminist is anachronistic. Uh, you know, feminist is coined much later, um, and that did not seem appropriate. And I think that early modern scholars need to be judicious about the terminology they use. Uh, I did find, however, misogynistic uh, was indeed uh, a, a term used in the period. Um, uh, uh, not only had been in ancient works like Galen and Menander, but in fact there are texts, uh, there's a text, for example, and ironically named The Praise of Women in 1550, which features the, the writer André Misogyne, um, and indeed dictionaries of the period. So I had no problem with that term because I could actually uh, situate it synchronically. Um, uh, there was no corresponding term for um, the other side, the sort of in favor of women's sides. So uh, <clears throat> I, I thought that uh, it is a kind of empty signifier that can assume meaning only in relation to what uh, um means at any particular historical moment. So I do, pro- <clears throat> excuse me, I do problematize the term, but I needed something. Uh, and hopefully one of these days we are going to find better terms for that. So in part two of the book, Domna, you examined three different examples of women's writing from the 17th century. And you talked mm-hmm. about the first chapter a little bit, but I'm, I'm going to want to follow up on that. So can you just in broad terms tell us what these three examples are and how these authors and texts illuminate our understanding of the dynamics of gender in, in this period? Right. Let me let me begin by uh, uh, sort of uh, repeating what I said a little bit earlier, which is that women seem to gravitate toward uh, the uh, modern genre. Mm-hmm. Why? Because, for example, a woman uh, putting works uh, up on stage would be dubbed a public woman, meaning a prostitute. So there was some strictures against certain uh, certain kinds mm-hmm. of writing. A dramatic was one, though. I've now uh, since on my 
new project, uh, working more closely with dramatists, female dramatists, uh, realize that indeed uh, there are more than one imagines. Uh, so that is one thing to say. Philosophy, of course, was another uh, problematic field for, for women. Uh, however, as I mentioned, there were these developing modern genres, all I think that need to be seen within the larger problem of what I call the female signature. Uh, and that is, that's why you have indeed a lot of Anon. As Virginia Woolf told us, uh, Anon was probably the name of a woman. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they, many, as these salons developed, find a kind of collective um, uh, support system, if you will, and indeed uh, sign. So, among the modern genre, um, there is a kind of salon poetry um, that emerges from the salon. There's also the specific genre of the portrait. Uh, Louis XIV's cousin, Mademoiselle de Montpensier, uh, does a collection of portraits uh, in 1659. I mentioned the problem of women in fiction, in which really uh, women make probably the greatest uh, contribution, the most voluminous uh, contribution. I mentioned that a little bit earlier. Uh, and indeed, um, finally, the letter, uh, the epistolary, um, which uh, I have a sample of with the letters of Mademoiselle de, Madame de Sévigné. Mm -hmm. uh, as for the novelistic, uh, I picked a, a short novel, um, Madame de Lafayette's short first and short novel of 1660, uh, <clears throat> which uh, really embarks on the on the genre of what's called la nouvelle historique, the kind of historical novella um, about which which I discuss as a genre uh, itself. Um, women's writing also went into fairy tales, but I've done a book about that, so I didn't do it again. Mm -hmm. um, and finally, even in philosophy, I did a recent work on the um, on the uh, uh, moral and political writings of Gabrielle Suchon, uh, whom I discovered and who turns out to have a great um, uh, philosophical aspirations um, writing in favor of women's freedom. So coming back uh, for a second, the two, the three genres that I do study is the memoir uh, with Madame, Madame de Laguette, uh, Sévigné's uh, letters, and then finally uh, Lafayette's uh, novella. So in the first chapter of the second part of the book, Domna, and your mm -hmm. reading of Laguette, you introduce this notion of a female autograph. Could you say oh. a little bit more about what that means and how you're using it in the book? Sure. Uh, it's, it's a self-reference. I did a book some years ago, which is called The Female Autograph. Uh, and it was really at that time, uh, there was very, very little work had been done on what's now called life writing and specifically the female inscription of the self or selves, as is usually the case. So I just uh, picked up that term again. Uh, for Madame de la Guette, since I believe the female autograph is not just um, uh, letters, but also memoirs and other forms of self-writing. So that's a kind of reference to my own work. Mm -hmm. So, Donna, ideas about the family play an important role in the book from, in both parts of the book, from the discussion of daughters and fathers in the chapter on Racine to the discussion of maternity in the chapter on Madame de Sévigny, and I'm not even covering all the places where you bring up family. Right. Yes. What contribution does the book make to the history and representation of the family in the 17th century in France? Uh, well, uh, certainly I would argue that uh, we see uh, 
in part some gender differences in terms of the paternal figure, for example, uh, where uh, uh, in when women write about fathers in particular and husbands as well, uh, there is a kind of demystification that goes on. Um, male writing, again, I'm generalizing mm-hmm. out of very few set of texts, so let me say I don't hold that this would apply to all 17th century works or early modern works. But in in this particular corpus, I wanted at the end uh, to look in the conclusion to could we see any differences uh, between the two halves of the book, if you will. And um, I did uh, discover that there are Again, within this limited corpus, uh, differences in representations uh, of the father. Um, pretty much everybody condemns the husband, but that uh, is a trope of the period as well. And in the mother, uh, really quite a difference uh, between the first half of the book by men and the second by women, since in both um, the memoir of Madame de la Guette uh, and uh, as well in, of course, the um, the Sévigné correspondence, it is this incredibly passionate relationship of the mother to the daughter. Um, I don't know how much of a general contribution that makes, uh, but I do think that one of the things that I am questioning um, in various ways in, in the book uh, is certainly uh, the issue of the mother-daughter relationship, for example, mm-hmm. um, let me just say that Madame de Sévigné's passion for her daughter uh, has historically uh, been read uh, to cite actually Proust um, as uh, as if it were an old man in love with a young girl. Hmm. Um, so, so very much um, uh, putting it in terms of sort of heterosexual relations. So, one of the things that I grappled with was where would Sévigné have gotten this passionate rhetoric uh, of um, mothers and daughters. Um, I don't want to belabor this too much, but let me just say briefly, um, uh, I had a revelation in the shower one morning, and it went something like this. Um, she thinks of herself as a superior mother, superior mother. Where did she get that? And the light went off. Um, I mean, in my head, not the shower, but um, in which it actually... Um, I suddenly realized I should look at the correspondence of mother superiors, in other words, abbesses. And indeed, I found uh, by reading uh, such correspondence, and there's many more I could have, but the ones that I found had this incredibly passionate rhetoric of abbesses to the novices. Um, for for those uh, of, of your listeners who might know this, nothing less passionate than what is in Hélène Sixou's uh, description of the kind of uh, emotional bonds or irrigerive, emotional bonds between mother and daughter. So I thought that was a very um, interesting thing. But conversely, uh, not conversely, but concomitantly, I discovered in Sévigné's own correspondence that she constantly compares herself to other mother-daughter relations in her elite uh, circle. And that indeed, uh, there's always a final thing. Well, they have, they have this, uh, very close relationship, uh, but of course we write better than they do. So there's, there is, uh, right there before you in her letters, uh, a kind of, uh, showing that this, uh, this relation of the mother-daughter, uh, which, uh, you know, for a long time people 
including Adrian Rich, thought didn't exist in the history of Western texts, we now know already in the 17th century. And even there's a, there's one particular mother-daughter bond uh, of the so-called femme des roches in the 16th century, which already shows very close um, uh, family, uh, well, maternal uh, sororal relations. One of the things I love about doing these interviews is that I get to find out about these moments of flashes of insight and where people get their ideas yes. to pursue different threads from. The shower is a good place. <laughs> um, so I just want to follow up, though, Domna, and ask about, at some point, I think you mentioned this in the introduction and then later on in the book, that you're also bringing with some of these readings a challenge to the notion and this is not at all my period, the 18th century, but the idea that it's not until the middle of the 18th century that yes. a certain kind of domestic ideal emerges. Could you say a little bit more about absolutely. that? Absolutely. Yes. No, and you are absolutely right. I mean, people have basically localized uh, a strong uh, uh, paternal son uh, maternal daughter and son relations, uh, really with the rise of the bourgeois family. I don't think that was an, an accidental conjuncture. I think there was a certain kind of Marxist discourse, if you will, at a certain point, which said to us, there's the sort of, uh, uh, uh nuclear family doesn't emerge until with, until the rise of the bourgeoisie in the middle of the 18th century. What I discovered uh, was I think it has to be located much earlier. And indeed in the book, uh, there's both a passionate um, husband and wife relation uh, in the case of Madame de Laguette uh, and in the uh, in the case of Madame de Sévigné uh, as well, uh, the, the mother-daughter relation. So uh, it, it has, I think, uh, I think it's only beginning now that people are thinking, wait a second, why don't we look at what exactly tells texts? tell us and Racine is a very good laboratory for that because they're very powerful mother-son relations for example mm -hmm. and even in this play that I study the relationship of Clytemnestra uh, to Iphigenia is not only close it's umbilical and somatic in this really interesting way. I was really intrigued by your use of these terms overreading and overunderstanding. Oh, sorry, <laughs> overstanding um, that emerged yes. in the last chapter of the book. So I wondered if you could yes. say a little bit more about how you're using those. Right. Um, well, um, the, the sixth and final chapter deals with this um, very little read uh, first novella of uh, Madame de Lafayette, which is called La Princesse de Montpensier. And not only has it been little read, but basically it has been read as um, a text uh, in which uh, basically the narrative voice uh, punishes uh, the uh, central character at the end. And that never felt right to me. That just didn't make a lot of sense. Uh, so my reading uh, goes against that um, and discovers... Um, that, uh, in fact, uh, something happens in the end uh, and that this last very crucial paragraph where the narrator seems to be condemning the heroine needs to be read ironically. Okay, so then I go into this long disquisition about irony um, uh, and what does that mean and indeed uh, discovered, uh, and in fact there are two pages um, in the book where I reproduce the final pages, the manuscript page and the first published edition, it seemed to me that there were two words 
there that made all the difference. And those words were, paradoxically, sans doute, without doubt. But in fact, those terms are what one would call in rhetoric pleonastic. You don't need them, and she didn't have them in the original text. That means to me that um, um, the author wanted you to notice that term. And indeed, what that sets up in doubt is you begin to wonder, what is this final thing? Why does the narrator claim that she died uh, in the flower of her youth, one of the most beautiful princes in the world, and would have been without doubt the happiest if virtue and prudence had led all her actions? Well, though the without doubt uh, is, was to me the giveaway, that something was really wrong, and then I began to re-examine the ending. No, she wouldn't have been the happiest because she was in this miserable marriage. Um, so somehow the ending unraveled through this um, kind of pleonastic phrase, without doubt, which set off in my own mind doubt about the way the ending had been, run, had been read uh, historically, mm-hmm. um, and which then um, I, I set off a sub a couple of proofs looking at the rest of the novella in light of this last sentence and thinking that irony is what could explain um, that uh, ending. In other words, that the ending is contrafactual, if you will, uh, to what is in the novella itself. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so the question is, is that an accurate reading? Is that an overstanding reading? <clears throat> and there I, uh, I counted and uh, uh, appropriated, if you will, uh, to uh, critics who had indeed talked about overstanding and kind of an overreading, uh, if you will, uh, and um, then went on a riff about women and irony, uh, which, which ends that chapter and ends the, uh, the chapters of the book. I'm wondering, Donna, how the book deals with the materiality of the texts themselves. I mean, you've got some illustrations in the book, in your mm-hmm. book, um, but I'm wondering about how this all fits into, the, you know, this scholarship of the last, well, more than a decade um, of the history of the book, the idea of the lives of books as objects, the mm-hmm. possible mm-hmm. gendered meanings of writing and reading themselves. What, what right. do you have to say about that? Well, I think those are very central issues uh, uh, to the book. And certainly um, that last chapter, by looking at different editions mm-hmm. uh, of the book, and, you know, there has been a tendency to look at the first version as the only definitive version. And the historians of the book have really put that into question. Mm-hmm. And I begin to talk about that uh, in the last chapter. Um, along the way, I think certainly... Um, uh, there has been, especially with the anonymous text as the beginning, you know, what edition do you use? Do you use this version? Do you use that work? I think that issue of uh, 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 the shifting, the dynamic nature of the book itself as an object, uh, I think, is, is raised as well. Um, certainly the issue, I think, of reception uh, is central to my readings, whether it's uh, Racine or Fénelon uh, or uh, indeed um, Sévigné as well, um, and finally of this particular Lafayette novella. And I think that, uh, if you will, uh, the notion of 
different readers and differently situated readers is really the central, maybe arguably, contribution uh, that feminism has made and feminist studies has made. But here I would, I would emphasize as well feminism only as one of um, one way of reading because mm-hmm. we now know that there are readings inflected which focus on issues of, of race and colonia- colonialism and postcoloniality and so forth. But I think this notion, uh, which I guess I would argue probably Bacht, uh, first introduces in the SZ of the reader before the kind of material text, I think is, is really a, a central issue of all of these ways of reading that have ver- emerged. And most recently, as I, I'm sure uh, you know as well, um, uh, readings that have to do with the post-humanist or the, mm-hmm. uh, the history of emotion, that's a very central uh, topic these days, and one which actually I think uh, my chapter on uh, Madame de Sévigné is, is actually something that I invoke. Um, you know, when we have localized certain emotions like mother love or, you know, um, uh, love for daughters and so forth, when do, have we located them and why have we located them at that particular moment? Uh, and I think those of us in the early modern period. Uh, not to say me too or me too, but actually are trying to see whether some of these issues are already foregrounded in an earlier time. I just want to back up to something that you you brought up a moment ago and that, well, I guess I'm moving forward too to the afterword of the book, Mm -hmm. this discussion that you have in the afterword about reading as a feminist. So can you say a little bit more about Mm -hmm. what it means to you to read as a feminist, how that's changed you know, over time, even for you as a scholar, and um, the ethics of that and where you think feminist critique is heading, if you have thoughts on that? Um, Well, to answer the last part uh, first, I do think that one of the interesting things about feminist uh, critique generally is the way it keeps shifting Mm -hmm. um, and finding new areas, new topics. um, You know, probably the most seismic moment uh, was, uh, of course, uh, the realization uh, in the early 80s that, of course, the issue of women of color had never been tapped and that we were operating basically uh, with constructs for white middle-class women. Um, and, of course, more recently, um, there has been, as I mentioned, uh, the emergence of several new forms uh, in my feminist a PhD feminist theory course that I did last year, I was fascinated by the number of students who were in animal studies or environmental studies, all from a feminist food studies, all from a sort of feminist lens. Mm-hmm. So one of the great things uh, is I think the way it keeps shifting and, of course, uh, more recently, the whole issue of not only gender but queer and transgender uh, I think is raises real issues about the binary um, under which we have operated as if there were only, you know, like the two bathrooms, as Lacan used to tell us, there's the, you know, the male room and the female room. Well, it turns out that that's not the case and that the binary uh, certainly no longer obtains today. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I, as I argued very briefly uh, in this afterwards, that we may have to think of gender, not simply by adding a third term here and there, but as a continuum 
on which there are multiple other sites of subjectivity that come to be recognized over time. But, of course, we don't know what those are. Uh, one other thing I'm, I might add here, I, I wanted to be very um, careful here and hope I emphasize it enough in the introduction and the conclusion that uh, gender is clearly um, uh, a topic of great importance uh, to me. Uh, but I think that as feminists, we also have to be thinking of gender in relation to other constructs. Uh, and I, at some point in the book, I raise uh, the question, um, how are we to read claims about the treatment of white aristocratic women relative to witches of the period or to enslaved Africans, uh, which is another project of mine uh, in the Caribbean um, uh, and so forth. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean here a hierarchy of oppressions, but mm-hmm. I do think that gender needs to be thought of. And at times uh, the gender is not nearly as, if you will, uh, compelling as class or race or some intersectionality uh, among those factors. So I do think that uh, we have as feminists a fundamental challenge to be always taking these other crucial uh, variables of subjectivity into account uh, and not just be uh, have our blinders on that it can only always be gender. Well, Donna, you hinted at this a little bit in this last response. What are you working on now? Ah, um, well, let me say that the um, the um, uh, the work on uh, slavery in the Caribbean in the 17th century um, is uh, is a fairly short project that I I've I have done as papers so far. I have not published it, but it tends to be as I I mentioned earlier the way that I tend to work. They're like reverse onions. You keep putting, adding layers and layers every time you do it. And then at some point you think, well, maybe, maybe it's almost ready now. Um, so that for sure. Um, I've, I'm also very lucky uh, to be teaching uh, in a teaching institution where I can teach um, my emerging research interests mm-hmm. this semester. For example, I'm teaching a course on Orientalism in the 17th century and looking at the Ottoman Empire. Um, and out of that comes a real putting into question uh, of uh, Said, uh, not only for his, um, for his, uh, he never looked at the early modern period, when in fact the Ottomans are extremely powerful. They're not the subjected colonials uh, of the moment in which he situates Orientalism, which is after Napoleon. Uh, so those are two things and uh, that I think I, in the future, but immediately um, I am part of a team uh, that's been commissioned by Gallimard uh, to write two volumes, uh, a kind of cultural slash literary history on women in literature. Um, and so there are eight of us, uh, three Americans and five French, and we each have our 150 pages to do, uh, mine on the 17th century. And let me just say, I think it's particularly exciting uh, that uh, the French would be committed. Uh, women's studies does not have the salience or the importance in France that it has had uh, in the United States and, and elsewhere, of course, um, over these last, whatever, 30 years. Uh, so it seems to me a really interesting investment uh, that Gallimard is willing to make. And, you know, one hopes that uh, when the Gallimard volume is out, that other other languages will also be interested. Mm-hmm. And I hope you'll keep me posted about that. Of course project, I will. And maybe I'll get a chance to talk to you and your 
all eight of all eight of us at the same time, right? (laughs) Well, Domna, I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing the book. Well, and Roxanne, this has been just a delightful conversation. It's always, um, you know, one feels like one is doing me, 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 me. But uh, you have been very patient and, and your questions have been terrific. So my thanks to you. 